One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the fourth part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Wars Against the French, which originally aired as a three-part special from the 25th of July to the 5th of August, 2012. Welcome back to the war again. Last time we saw how Napoleon consolidated his forces and prepared a campaign in Egypt, what he thought of Ireland and how he then managed to transform the French government yet again. Assuming new powers, Napoleon set to work defending his position with stunning victories against the Second Coalition, and with a temporary resurrection of the League of Armed Neutrality, which gave London a taste of things to come. By late 1801 though, both sides were knackered by years of total war, and with a change of leadership in Britain, the time seemed ripe for peace if French diplomacy could win in the stately room as French arms had won on the battlefield. With all of this considered, I will now take you to the year 1801. Theoretical principles must sometimes give way for the sake of practical advantages. William Pitt the Younger Traditional narratives of the wars against the French normally put it that Europe was at a state of constant war from the moment Louis' head rolled to Waterloo. On numerous levels, such a narrative misses the mark, but the idea that war was waged on an unending course is a common one. Many are not aware, unless they know of the period well, that Britain and France agreed to peace terms by spring 1802. The fact doesn't gel well with the version of British history we may be more familiar with, 
that of Britain holding out against a supreme power in Europe, as it did in World War II, and, some would argue, World War I. Indeed, the Napoleonic Wars do contain many instances of Britain taking the fight to France and holding out against all hope, and in Napoleon's mind, sense. Yet, we would be skipping huge portions of this rich history if we failed to mention that peace was reached between the two great rivals, even if it only lasted for a year in the end. While we often state the supremacy of France in military terms, we should not forget that France was, by 1801, suffering from a deep-seated war weariness. Years of revolution had taken their toll, as revolt in the provinces at home endured where royalists resurfaced, and the disruption caused by conscription and pillage also took its toll. In addition to the domestic woes, the practical cost of maintaining a war against a continent of powers meant that France was severely strained financially. Due to the effective British naval blockade of the French ports and the effective shutdown of French trade in the process, the people in France were growing restless. Mass conscription didn't help, of course, and though Napoleon was popular by this point and serving under him was a great honour, there were fields to till, families to care for and lives back home to consider. The conscripted French soldier couldn't march around the continent forever, and with each individual life multiplied by so high a number, the disruption becomes easy to imagine. The French had a standing army of nearly 3 million men in 1801, but it was a tired and frustrated army, eager to get back home and rejoin their respective loved ones. Napoleon knew that his armies were sick of war and that the people wanted peace. He knew that the best and most popular gift he could give them was an end to the war, which had raged non-stop against Britain since 1793, when, incidentally, it has to be said, the French people had declared it. What the French people hoped for now was peace, and repeated victories against continental enemies gave them hope that peace would be near, as Europe slowly tore its own coalition apart yet again. For all the victories, though, the one tenacious enemy remained in place. Britain had been the relentless enemy of France. After gaining a reprieve from the Egyptian campaign, wherein Britain defeated a French fleet in the Mediterranean and crippled French chances to march to India in the process, London's intransigence became more than a concern. The Egyptian failures had additional repercussions, because without the success of the Egyptian campaign, it was hard to see any way of bringing to an end the war with Britain, short of invading Britain itself. Such an option had been toyed with in the past, and indeed Napoleon had consulted his admirals on many occasions, though generally preferring in many instances to invade Ireland as a preface to the main invasion of Britain. But the main fact was that such plans required resources that were simply out of Napoleon's hands, by 1801. Even with the naval help of Spain, who don't forget was at war with Britain at this stage too, Napoleon knew that an invasion of Britain couldn't be done without overwhelming naval superiority. The possibility of making use of Allied fleets, such as those of the Danish and Dutch, were defeated in the battles of Camperdown on the 11th of October 1797 and the preemptive strike at Copenhagen on the 2nd of April 1801 respectively. Without the League of Armed Neutrality, which Britain had persuaded to disband, nothing could prevent Britain maintaining its mastery of the seas. Conversely though, without any allies on the continent, Britain knew that French and their allied armies couldn't be stopped either. Both sides then had an overwhelming force in their respective area of expertise, but without the other area nothing could realistically be done. France couldn't move the massive armies it had across the Channel, and Britain couldn't place the armies it didn't have into the ships that it did have. So a stalemate ensued for the months leading up to October of 1801. In an effort to capitalise on this unofficial cool-down, 
Napoleon ordered that no moves, unless they were essential, should be taken against the British for the entirety of October. He believed that his greatest victory, that of peace with Britain, was just around the corner, and incidentally, he was right. The preliminary peace articles had actually been signed on the 1st of October 1801, with a proclamation by King George III of Britain ordering an end to conflict on the land and sea coming on the 12th of October. Negotiations continued into 1802 and resulted in the signing of the definitive peace treaty, the Peace of Amiens, on the 23rd of March 1802. Debate still rages today about whether the signing of the peace treaty actually meant defeat for Britain. Arguments for and against must consider the very blatant fact that France had achieved monumental benefits for its influence, its power and people. French power was unquestionable and Napoleon's regime was seen by many as the ideal model. In contrast, the peace treaty wasn't wholly disadvantageous to Britain, though she would have to evacuate Malta, Menorca and the Cape Colony to their respectful owners. France promised to pay compensation to the ousted House of Orange Nassau in the Netherlands, Britain gained much Indian territory which remained its bread and butter, and Napoleon committed France to withdraw its forces from the Papal States and the Kingdom of Naples, on top of its promise to retain French borders as they stood and plan no further expansions of French power. Napoleon was to break this promise, but by committing to such Munich-like proposals, Henry Addington, Pitt's replacement as Prime Minister, was essentially able to proclaim peace in our time, a long-running goal of the British government for some time, and for a while at least, a popular policy option. Napoleon, of course, saw the peace as his greatest victory, and also cynically viewed much of its terms with as little care as Britain would later do. France now had an opportunity to call London's bluff by forcibly expanding during peacetime. But then again, Britain was playing the exact same game, as Todd Fisher in his book, The Napoleonic Wars, The Rise and Fall of an Empire, explains... Pitt never regarded the peace as anything other than a pause in the continuing struggle with France. And he went on to write, It represented a defeat for Pitt, but he was more than happy to allow the blame for it to fall on his successor as Prime Minister, Lord Henry Addington. Britain had other reasons to sue for peace. Diplomatically, she was isolated, more more so than perhaps at any other time than when facing France. The signing of the peace was, in my view then, both a necessity and a realisation that the current situation contained no areas really ripe for exploitation. And I realise that sounds more like a rap than a sentence, but there you go. This is alluded to again by Fisher, when he writes, Britain had lost or alienated many of her potential and traditional allies. Austria had been badly mauled in the last year of the war at the battles of Marengo and Hohenlinden. Russia appeared on the verge of an alliance with France. Denmark had been thrown into French arms by the attack on Copenhagen in April 1801. Prussia coveted Hanover, a British royal possession, and had also been offended by British moves in the Baltic and against Denmark previously. Britain appeared somewhat isolated as a result. The British were quite simply out of Leeds. Napoleon was desperate for a peace which would cement his status as the conquering hero. The peace, of course, also gave Britain a chance to regroup and rebuild in areas like Ireland, which necessitated some reform, and in solidifying its new status, because Britain was, as of 1801, no longer simply Britain. It was now the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The year of peace brought on by Amiens was the only break in the wars against the French, and in many ways it confirmed the idea that the peace had been a final French victory. 
This was because it was a time of immense prosperity in France, as people flocked from Europe to Paris and to see Napoleon, since the man was a hero for those not just living in France. According to his private secretary, Louis de Bourrienne, Napoleon was very happy with the way things were going. He is, above all, delighted with the admiration the exhibition excited among the numerous foreigners who resorted to Paris during the peace. But despite the frills and pomp and friendly gestures sent back and forth, all around Europe were signs that the peace could not last. Soon after the treaty was concluded, the Ottomans made peace with Napoleon, and this worried the British that they may soon face another threat to India via Egypt. In response to this perceived threat, Britain refused to evacuate Malta, its only remaining naval base in the Mediterranean. Malta had been meant to fall under the jurisdiction of the Knights of St. John, that ancient group which had governed it for so long. But such an old government style was obsolete by the 19th century. The Maltese were sick of that old Catholic order ruling over them, and the Knights themselves required income from their estates back in Europe, which, it turned out, had been handed over to revolutionaries. This was a fact which Napoleon glossed over when he had insisted upon Malta reverting back to its old system of governance, as per the peace terms. Such a situation was not created by Britain in its quest to cling to the island, but the British certainly took advantage of it. The historians that examine the reasons why Amiens broke down so quickly often point to the British refusal to evacuate Malta. But Napoleon, despite what his sympathisers claim, is not free from guilt in this case either. Although he had agreed to respect the sovereignty of Switzerland and the Peace of Amiens, almost immediately he began to fiddle with it. Add this to Napoleon's seizure of vast tracts of Italian land, so as to swell French borders beyond their historical limits, and while on paper such feats did look impressive, to London these acts were reminders that Napoleon would never fall in line. As he violated terms of his own peace treaty, the critical idea came to the fore, one which was to haunt Britain during the peace, i.e. that she was losing more to France while at peace than she would potentially lose during wartime. At least during a state of war, Britain would have the opportunity to seize back what they lost. But during this tense peace, London was faced with the human... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
humiliating prospect of watching Napoleon take what he wanted under the cloak of peace, just as he criticised Britain for not adhering to that same peace treaty. So it was that by the end of 1802, France may have looked like an absolute beast on the map of Europe, but peace was escaping Napoleon far faster than he would have liked. Frederick Schneid, in his book, Napoleon's Conquest of Europe, The War of the Third Coalition, writes about what Napoleon did during the period of peace, saying, Napoleon took the opportunity to stabilise the French economy when in 1802 war ended between Britain and France. During 1803, 625 million francs had been collected in revenue, and by the end of the second quarter only 100 million had been invested into the Ministry of War and Marine. Napoleon balanced the budget for that year, and planned to do so the following year on the assumption that peace would last. Nobody could accuse Napoleon of being naive, but he really should have known that peace with Britain wouldn't last, and Schneid notes what the outbreak of war the following year did to the French economy, saying, The outbreak of war in May 1803 threw France into a financial crisis which reached its terrible zenith in 1805. It is a valid historical question and perhaps tells us much about his psyche as a human being to ask why Napoleon believed in the Peace of Amiens even as he took steps to strategically infringe upon its terms. Did he genuinely expect the peace to last or did he treat the period as a momentary respite and an opportunity to seize a convenient number of items right under Britain's nose? Perhaps he was so happy peace had finally been achieved he was unwilling to realise its temporary nature or perhaps he failed to understand, as so many enemies of Britain would, the nature of Britain's rationale for remaining at war in spite of the costs. As Hitler would discover a century later, when it came to waging war alone, London did not always adhere to logic. What mattered was not the odds against Britain in wartime, but the effect that such a peace had on British prestige, and the idea that, so long as a superstate like Napoleon's existed, Britain could never enjoy genuine stability or prosperity. The direct attack and honest policy of aggression, in other words, was favourable to London than to always having to look over one's shoulder and prop up a peace treaty which was becoming increasingly difficult and unpopular to justify. Even while King George III of Britain finally waived that age-old claim of Britain's to the throne of France, a seriously significant acceptance which represented the end of a historical era that had been maintained, however, fancifully since the Hundred Years' War, it was tacitly accepted at the same time that the Europe which Britain had left to Napoleon could not produce anything good for future British ambitions. It was a Europe which Napoleon had a free hand in, while in the Americas there seemed to be further bad news, as Louisiana was regained from Spain, presenting a similarly nightmarish situation of a Napoleonic France controlling not just Europe but then America and perhaps the world. Such conclusions are almost certainly the most extreme that could have been reached, but they still occupied many a worried British statesman, who joined the slowly growing trend of politicians, diplomats and others, who saw the peace not as a chance for worldwide peace to blossom or to cultivate French friendship, but solely as a chance for Napoleon to pull more and more influence away from a weary Britain at peacetime. Unless Britain wasn't at peacetime, could war really be renewed so soon? Why not allow the peace of Amiens to remain? In response to this question, see Northcote Parkinson of Britannia Rules, so yeah, obviously not a very biased source at all, notes the fundamental problem Britons had with the 
idea of a permanent peace. Had the Treaty of Amiens produced, say, 20 years of peace, it would have left Bonaparte completely dominant in Europe, as supreme as Philip II had sought to be, more autocratic than Louis XIV had ever been, as oppressive as Adolf Hitler would ever be. Of course, it should go without saying that the opinion of the author in this case on the character of Napoleon is totally outrageous. Napoleon was no Hitler for one, and his rule contained a relatively enlightened period of despotism, which was in no way comparable to that of the French kings who would come before, and certainly not the great A scumbag that was Hitler. But his point does have some truth behind it. Leave Napoleon in power now, and he will surely be master of the world in just a few decades. Napoleon had responded to British affronts by acting against the treaty himself, as he began to develop Antwerp in the Netherlands as a base for the construction of new ships. At the same time, he also annexed Elba, Liguria and Piedmont into France, further strengthening French borders and elongating its influence in the process. Tensions were mounting between the new friends, so much so that by March 1803, war looked again certain. Britain still refused to evacuate Malta since it required the naval base in the Mediterranean to watch over southern Europe, of which practically all came under Napoleonic influence. The decision to declare war was preceded by some unsuccessful diplomacy on Napoleon's part, who didn't like the way the wind was blowing and wanted the situation to be kept under control. Napoleon offered to allow the British control of Malta, so long as they allowed him the possession of the Toronto Peninsula, which was basically the heel of Italy's boot. But Britain knew this would have meant Italy under France for good, so the refusal was handed back. Napoleon was irritated but not unduly worried about facing Britain again. While it would be a pain, it wouldn't limit his plans any more than it had before. He had conquered Europe whilst being at war with Britain. He could do so again if he had to. Napoleon was also encouraged by the lack of continental allies that Britain could turn to, since all were either controlled by or on friendly terms with Napoleonic France. Sensing which way the winds were blowing and accepting that peace was not long for this world, London adopted a more aggressive and determined policy than before. In the last weeks of April 1803, British military preparations were stepped up, and by May, she had launched preemptive strikes against France by seizing all French ships and shipping that they could grab. Napoleon responded to this by preventing the free movement of all British subjects who would come to admire him in France. Now they were the virtual prisoners of Napoleon. Britain did the same, though it's doubtful there were many French citizens in Britain at this time, since the weather was better in France anyway. Napoleon ordered the withdrawal of his fleets back to secure positions, and Britain declared war on the 16th of May 1803, ending the altogether strange but undoubtedly interesting period of history which proved to the world that once again, no matter how hard they tried to be friends, Britain and France were just so much better at being sworn enemies. On the subject of resuming the war, Christopher David Hall in his book British Strategy in the Napoleonic War, 1803-15, wrote that Ministers did not trust Bonaparte and felt that continued peace brought with it the risk that war would be declared without any strategic benefits to Britain proper. Once hostilities had opened, Britain could enjoy the psychological benefits of removing any uncertainty, while also enabling it to hold Malta, restrict France on the seas, and block Egypt from a possible second campaign. But Napoleon had been planning what course of action to take should war be resumed, and it did not involve Egypt. 
Napoleon's plans still centred on invading Britain, that age-old combination of logistical nightmares and strategic bluffs. Landing craft and troops had been made ready at various ports of Antwerp, Brest and Calais, but the situation and indeed the statistics were highly misleading. While on paper, Napoleon presided over 2,200 craft in all, including landing craft, it wasn't until he visited the fleets himself on the 20th of July 1804 that he came to the realisation he was just not ready. Our man C. Northcote Parkinson sets the scene, writing, When Napoleon visited his fleets at Boulogne, it was a blowing gale and the landing craft were mostly running for shelter at a table or saint Valais or Somme, others being driven on shore or wrecked near Portet. A scene of disaster, in which 400 men perished, was made worse by the fire of two British sloops, the Harpy and Autumn, and two gun brigs, the Bloodhound and Archer. The incident was but a small one on the grand scheme of things, but the significant fact was that it took place in the height of summer. With weather this bad in late July, what might an invasion force expect in spring or autumn? And what losses might be expected if such a gale were to blow up after the whole invasion force had set sail for England? And while the British had played only a small part in the setback, the fact that they were very much present despite the gale was a constant reminder of Britain's superiority in navigating and battling on the seas. Were the invasion taking place, though, the British would be there in much greater numbers and would be willing to take far greater risks. People often point to Trafalgar as the key moment when Napoleon realised that Britain could never be invaded, and as a consequence, perhaps, never totally defeated. But one should remember that the French Navy, even when they were joined by the Spanish in late 1804, never really had the capabilities to launch such an invasion. Much like the Nazis never lost a significant naval battle, but the German High Command in the first place never possessed the resources to launch a successful invasion either way. Napoleon was faced with the bare fact of the matter by autumn 1804 that it simply wasn't within French capabilities at that time to launch a successful invasion. Thus, when Trafalgar did come, while it was a stunning naval victory for Britain, it was also merely a confirmation of what Napoleon already knew to be true, that Britain's channel and its navy had saved it once again. With the danger passing, despite the regular flashes of paranoia that London experienced, it seemed that the time was ripe for another coalition. The third coalition can be traced back to early 1804, when Napoleon, having just survived an assassination attempt, ordered the capture and execution of Louis Antoine, the Duke of Enyan. This order, while it was a rash decision made on the spur of the moment, and many have since disputed whether Napoleon even ordered it, caused many in Europe to see not just France, but now Napoleon in a terrifying new light. In the words of Todd Fisher, in his book The Napoleonic Wars, The Rise and Fall of an Empire, there were a few layers to this action. The act of executing the Bourbon family member was a turning point in Napoleon's career. The execution of a prince galvanised the opinions of Europe against him. It can be argued that Napoleon had little choice but to send the message to the Bourbons that two could play the game of murder. Indeed, assassination attempts against Napoleon dwindled considerably after this event. Napoleon saw previous neutrals in Europe turn to his only enemy, Britain, as a result of his prince killing. Sweden broke off diplomatic ties with France and allowed Britain to use the Swedish ports in Pomerania against Napoleon. But these were just the opening salvos in the soon-to-be coalition. William Pitt, now having returned after Henry Addington couldn't face the music of war, began working overtime to secure yet another coalition against France. 
He worked on the Russians especially hard, since while they may have been seen as the dark horse of Europe and they had had issues with Britain concerning the Baltic, the Ottoman Empire and trade, securing such a large enemy against France, which essentially covered the entirety of the east of Europe, was of course desirable. The work of Pitt bore fruit as well, as Russia under Tsar Alexander signed an alliance with Britain in April 1805. In May 1805, Austria needed little convincing to join its favourite party yet again, as it saw that Britain had done it again and made another coalition. With such schemes evidently underway, Napoleon made the decision to irk Austria further by claiming the newly created throne of Italy for himself, which pushed it into the arms of Britain once again. While he resented the constant recreation of coalitions, Napoleon was simultaneously preparing his forces to deliver the knockout blow which could only come from a large campaign. Much like London had insisted that the Peace of Amiens had held Britain back, Napoleon believed his regime could only be safe if he brought total defeat to his enemies once more. This time he would hold nothing back. In the next episode we shall see the fruits of this campaigning, as Napoleon and his allies prepared for the greatest victory yet seen in the war. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 